You are listening to Circle of Hope's Sunday Meeting Podcast. This talk was given at 2007 Frankfurt Avenue. For more information, visit us at circleofhope.net. I've been enjoying the cup of coffee I drink in the morning for some time now. Because I, I look at it and I, uh, I want the drug that's in it, but I don't like the path to get there. Um, so I decided I didn't like coffee, and I real and I you know it was a there was a moment of realization of you don't really like this but you like what it does. So then I, I started living my life that way, saying I don't like coffee. And then the other day I was with somebody and I had a cup of coffee I liked a lot, and then I realized it wasn't you. I had a pumpkin spice latte with you, which is not like. A, like, it's a different kind of drink, in my opinion. I'm not throwing shade to, you know, basic people about that stuff. I'm not. I'm just saying it's a different drink. Anyway, I had a real cup of coffee, and and I thought, man, I really, it, it was with someone here. I only drink coffee with you people. It was you. And I said, this is a great cup of coffee. And then I realized, oh, you don't not like coffee. You're just bad at making coffee. That's, that's what happened to, oh, yeah, well, I listen to my friends and all their opinions. So, and they, and, and so I realized, you just need to learn to make a better cup of coffee. And, and that's why we're talking about things Jesus never said. Because I think some people have simply had a bad taste of Jesus and they decided they don't like Jesus. But we're trying to clarify it a little bit. Get, get, get rid of the, because I, I make it in a French press, which is a, a viscous, uh, uh, has a viscous quality. And people don't, yeah, you don't like it, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's garbage. So, <laughs> so yeah, we're trying to kind of remove what shouldn't be in the mix with our faith. But that, that, that invariably clouds it so that we can see a little bit more clearly and kind of a little bit uh, uh, cleaner in a sense. Does that make sense? That's the idea we're working with. There's a lot of philosophy that feels like Christian uh, philosophy or Christian theology that we hear about, and that complicates our faith. Like this saying, and I know Jesus didn't say this. Everyone is entitled to their opinion. I know Jesus didn't say that, but it's in my head, and it kind of fits into this world as I'm discerning this. But why do, why do I know Jesus didn't say it? Because Daniel Patrick Moynihan said it. You know, anyone know who this is? Daniel Patrick Moynihan? Not that much. Yeah, here he is. U.S. Senator representing, he represented New York for 24 years, as well as served on uh, John Kennedy, Lyndon Johnson, Dick Nixon, Gerald Ford's uh, cabinets. Hillary Clinton was the senator that uh, took his seat, if, you're, if you follow, if you wanted senatorial history. Um, he's a public intellectual. And he's the one that said everyone is entitled to their to his own opinions. I said their own opinions, but not to their own facts. Yeah, well, that's we'll get to that, Trish. <laughs> that 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 uh, that the uh, default pronoun in English is masculine. There's a reason for that, right? It's not a good reason. There's just a reason, you know. Um, so honestly, when when I put it in this context, I kind of love the saying, right? It kind of fixes itself, doesn't it? Jesus didn't say it, but I don't think it actually conflicts with what Jesus said in its complete phrase. It kind of, it doesn't, it's just kind of alongside Jesus. Unfortunately, 
These days, the distinction, and maybe all days, but these days in particular, it feels to me, the distinction between facts and opinions is really up for discussion, isn't it? What's the difference between a fact and opinion? Well, that's an opinion, right? Would you say that's true right now in this kind of political economy we live in? Misinformation is a big problem. Most people have opinions based on the facts that are presented to them. And before, seems to me like before the streams of facts that we got were a little bit more uh, conglomerated, if you will. And I use that term on purpose because they came from media conglomerates. But now we get all sorts of information um, curated for us and curated to uh, make our minds, make, our, make, make us think the way that we think. And so when new facts contradict our opinion, we dismiss them. Or we at least hear them dismissed as what? What are new facts that challenge our opinion dismissed as right now in the United States? What's the term? Fake news. That's right. You went to five, though. I want to see if there was a, a seven. <laughs> Did anyone else come to that conclusion? Yes. Uh, he re he's repeating the class and then giving the answer. <laughs> 24! <laughs> Good job, John. <laughs> so our commander-in-chief has uh, credited, discredited among his uh, base any hostility from the media. I know since I follow him on Twitter. Um, and uh, I don't know why I do. You know, I'm never saying, what, what's wrong with him? What's wrong with your life? I've made, made some bad choices. But he discredits the media, and, and, this, and, and, and this discrediting is a play right out of the authoritarian playbook, right? In authoritarian countries, the autocrat runs the media. You know, that's kind of, that's how it works, right? Um, that's the idea. Like, you should read uh, Turkey's official newspaper to get some uh, propaganda about the Kurds if you want. Right? That's how authoritarian countries rule. Here, discrediting the media is an important part of uh, the... Uh, it's not surprising to me that this administration does that. But most people... And I'm, I'm going to stop there for now. But most people aren't just dismissing point of views that they disagree with as false. They just say your point of view is really just a matter of your opinion. You know, it's just a matter of how you're interpreting the facts. Like the other day... Here's, here's Lebowski for a while. The other day, I was talking to a guy with whom I had a disagreement. I was going to show you the whole clip here at the bowling alley with Jesus, but um, it's just too profane for the Sunday. <laughs> like, even for me, I was like, no, I can't do that. I mean, it's Walter has, a, has an episode. <laughs> anyway, um, I was talking to my friend about my blog because he was telling me I was, much to your surprise, too political on it. And you can read it, by the way, circlehope.net slash John Rashid if you want. But he was saying this is inappropriate because you shouldn't be this political and express your opinion this way. And I told him, hey, the evil that I'm naming is so manifest that I'm not being political. It's just a matter of fact. And we can talk about that if you want. Anyway, he told me, we just interpret the news differently. We get the same data and we interpret it differently. And I don't want to get into more specifics. Um, because I think, honestly, for the most part, I'm kind of preaching to the choir here, so I'm not, I don't want to do that. But what he pointed out it, to me was something clear. You can't tell the difference between facts and opinions, and so we have a problem. 
Everyone is entitled to their own opinion. And as such, everyone is entitled to their own facts too. And that's the, the, and, and the facts that, that get filtered to us are subjective in their nature. And this is across all media. It's not just one thing or another. I'm not just talking about like Fox, you know. What the New York Times decides to put above the fold every day is a subjectively decided stream of information to you, right? That's the talking point. This is what we're talking about. This is why it's important. You know, when you think about the tragedies that you hear about around the world, we hear about certain ones in the United States for a specific reason and in a specific way. So this, this, even, this is across kind of um, American partisan politics. It goes bigger than that. It's part of uh, geopolitics, you might say. So the facts that we get are also subjective in their limitation. And I, I kind of like this idea in general because the, I, I, I don't believe the facts speak for themselves. I don't think the facts do anything. I don't think data does anything. I don't think empirical data does anything. It needs to be interpreted. Facts don't really exist until we give them life. And upon giving them life, we paint them based on our opinion. Everyone is entitled to their own opinion, yes, Senator. They have to be. You see the world and then you interpret it. And your interpretation is your opinion. You know, you might like French press coffee for some reason. Realizing that should make us more gracious with each other and not less gracious with each other. But I happen to think that it's made us less gracious with each other. And that's not because our opinions are um, abstractions or removed from ourselves. We should just understand that we see each other differently based on who we are, based on our experiences. And, and that's not the end of the story, that's just the start of the relationship. For a long time, it was dominant powers that controlled the narratives that we used to understand the world. European men, in particular, were people that framed how we thought of the world. And I say European for a specific reason, because continental philosophy is, is, was a basis for a lot of what we understand, even today in the United States. They dominated politics, art, culture, literature, the church. Every institution that frames how we think about the world was dominated by European men. So they were telling us their version of, of history without even naming it their version of history. It was just like, this is just how it is, you know? And so what followed was this period of deconstruction. Some call it postmodernism, where the assumptions we had about the world were no longer centered on what conclusions those European men came up with. So this period of new philosophy started, unfortunately also by European men, but existentialism is what it's called, and it's premised on, I mean, it's true, I mean, eventually it gets better, but, you know, they're generally French European men and women, you know. Existentialism followed, and it's premised on this idea. Existence precedes essence. What does that mean? I'm going to leave it up here for a while so you can think about it with me. It means you aren't anything, we aren't anything until we say we are something. You offer yourself an essence, an essentialness to your being because you are the uh, assigner of the meaning of your life, not anything outside of you, not the powers that be and certainly not God, your creator, your purported creator. 
That isn't what's assigning you value. You have to find it. Like when Nietzsche says, what does your conscience say? You should become the person you are. And also you're discovering who you are and you're making yourself go, right? We're, we are doing that now and there's pressure on us to figure out who we are now and what meaning we're going to have in the world. I understand that. I don't think it's all bad too. You know, we should take some responsibility for who we're going to be and what we're going to do. I think that's a Christian idea too. These uh, existentialists found freedom from the absurdity of life and the, the angst of their life by realizing Life really only has the point you offer it. The essence you offer it. Now I can appreciate this for a few reasons. Not least of which is, is it challenging the assumptions of this preceding intellectual movement, which could be summarized under the Enlightenment in Europe, of which the United States is the crowning achievement. 1776, we did it. Here's the new world. Here's how it's supposed to be. This is the uh, liberal democracy that the best of European philosophy came up with. Not that good, but you know, this is it. This is, the, this is this project we submitted. And so challenging the assumptions of all those things, and now we're allowing other people from other contexts, namely women and people of color, to offer their perspective, to offer their view. You know, and, and I'm mainly uh, into theology, and so we see this now in what we call contextual theology, where you have like liberation theology or black uh, theology or queer theology, and all these groups are coming up with different ways to understand no God in the world and the Bible based on their understanding, and it isn't just continental theologians telling us what, how everything works. That's an important development. But in deconstructing the past, we end up with a tenuous present because we made some progress and we need to make more, but it's clear that most people, unless they are very explicitly hateful, would say that not, not everyone can offer their perspective. Now, some people do say that, you know, and I want to acknowledge that those people exist. There are some churches that limit the perspective that women can offer, for example. And so it's a real live issue now, but I would say outside of a few explicit demonstrations of this, most of us think, no, we can all talk and it's okay. We think that, we don't act that way necessarily, but we generally have this idea. We're left though, the reason it's tenuous is because um, we're left with a limited value in deconstruction alone. Noting how socially constructed, that is, how constructed we made the essence of our existence, our world is, is helpful insofar as it challenges the assumptions we have but too much rebellion from a basis can result in the worst of things. Here's how, here's how, in my opinion, we're in the mess that we're in. Yes, European men kind of set up how we think about the whole world for a long time. And upon being threatened by new ideas, instead of reverting back to the old ones, they just got in line on the postmodern side and said, yeah, well, we're going to come up with our own essence too. And that's why I'm a white nationalist. That's why I want a white ethnostate. Why not me? I'm also an ethnic group. I also feel oppressed. And I'm just using the same language you're using. And now I'm here. So you see how that worked? They didn't go back to their old philosophy to push kind of uh, 17th century European philosophy on us. They invented a new way of thinking about things. So, so the, the ugly side of postmodernism is that you can have this live discussion. 
about what we thought we were graduating from. But because we didn't have a moral basis, in my opinion, we were left vulnerable with this sort of uh, possibility. The argument here is that, just to, to, to reduce it down, if existence precedes essence, if you aren't not anything until you say you are something, then there's nothing wrong with me inventing my essence, even if it is oppressing you or hurting you in some way. Because I'm figuring this out on my own. There is no collective meaning we share. I'm not responsible for the things that I do because this whole thing is absurd and meaningless anyway. So, sorry, that's just how it be sometimes. We didn't imagine that postmodern deconstruction would result in this kind of thing that we're fighting, but that's how it seems. So I appreciate the good that can come from deconstruction. It's really important for me to deconstruct, but also reconstruct my own faith. But I don't think it's enough. Just to put a finer point on it. Yes, everyone is entitled to their own opinion. But your opinion isn't the end of the story. No, your individualism and our individualism isn't the end of the story. And unfortunately, we can't separate existential deconstruction from individualism. Those things are going to fuse together. You know, one of the issues we have is the uh, hubris that, uh, or the arrogance or the pride that came from European philosophy dominating us still lingers with us today. Because you know the people that express their opinions in a way that makes it seem like they're unchallengeable and totally right. And they're often European-looking men. Right? So, so this thing has still happened. Now we're European looking. See how race got introduced into this discussion before it wasn't, now it is, because it's not European anymore. We're talking about white people. The other side of everyone is entitled to their opinion is you should just leave me alone. Right? Mind your business. You know, yeah, you disagree with me, but everyone, I'm entitled to my opinion, you're entitled to yours, we're just going to agree to disagree. Let's just move on. I don't know why you're all excited about this. I'm entitled to my opinion, you're entitled to yours. But we are connected to it, right? Inextricably, we're connected to each other. My thoughts are connected to my body, um, and, and similarly, our thoughts are connected to this body. You know, I don't want to live in a church where people just mind their business. I really don't want to do that. I want to get into all the stuff we need to get into to actually move forward together. You know, and I hate to say it this way, but I kind of mean it. You're not just entitled to an opinion. You really need to have one. You need to have an idea, a, a thought, uh, and, and then an embodied thought to add to it. Obviously, you can't have an opinion about everything. And there are some of us that are more opinionated about all sorts of subjects, like the person who's talking right now. That's a common, that's a common thing. And you might feel like, I don't have an opinion about random things. <laughs> you might think what I have an opinion on is random, and it kind of is. But what I mean is, I want a church where we care about everything that we do. And we think about it, and we contribute to it, and we're a part of it. That's what I want. I want a church that cares. To me, that's a church that doesn't just mind its own business. You know, I want to do something together. That involves all of us. You know, what we're learning is that we're too interconnected to divorce our opinions from ourselves and our opinions from one another. And this is a new piece of uh, understanding that I'm coming to. The, reason, the things we think, the things we do, the way we act affects the people around us. 
There's no escaping that. It's connected to you, but it's also connected to me. I can't separate my, uh, my uh, opinion, so to speak, from myself. They're still a part of me. They're still connected to me. And I experience this all the time because have you ever gotten into a conversation with somebody where you're having what appears to be an abstract conversation, but you're getting worked up, that it's connecting back to you, and all of a sudden you're uh, upset? You know, I, I, I do this with strange things. Like, I get mad at people on the internet for, and, and, and I attack their character for rooting for a team that's wearing different clothing than my team. And, and, and the players aren't even representatives of where we live. They're not even like Philadelphians. They're just random people that happen to work for this company in Philadelphia. But yeah, you know, Cowboys fans are like evil, right? That's, that's, that's what I think. You know, and, 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 and like I heard the story, a guy who wouldn't go out on a date with this woman because she was a cowboy fan. That was it. That was, that was the end of it. And he was confessing. He was telling us, I feel shallow for doing this. And I said, hey, <laughs> I get it. I get it. Um, because it's crazy, right? I'm that interconnected to my thing, right? And you'll experience this in a few weeks, perhaps, when you get into a conversation um, at a late hour during Thanksgiving, if you do this with your family, where you're going to talk about something possibly that seems abstract from you, but somehow as the tryptophan gets digested, it gets more intense, and all of a sudden you're yelling at your grandma, (laughs) you know, about about domestic policy for some reason. And that's not a bad thing. We just need to know our, our thoughts are connected to us. That's what's happening. And so let's take care then from each other. Let's not build a church where we don't care about each other, where we, where we mind our business, you know? Let's have an opinion and let's express it. We can't divorce ourselves from what, our opinions from one another. And so instead of just relying on the dominators to frame the world for us, instead of dividing ourselves up into a million pieces, the project we're working on is coming together to build something in common. That isn't just the sum of our individual selves, but even greater than that. In Circle of Hope, we say a dialogue of love is holding us together, and we succeed at that dialogue better at sometimes and worse at others. But in that dialogue of love, everyone is, in, is, is, is indeed free to have their opinion. But their opinion isn't their entirety, though it is connected to them, and it isn't just subject to the facts. We need to, we're moving in a common direction and having common agreements. So we're free to dialogue because we are moving together and we've agreed to move together. So we agree to agree as a church. We're working on getting to a common agreement and that's through the dialogue. That's how we get there. So this, our opinions are obviously not inscrutable. And we don't want to have people in positions of authority where their, their opinions are inscrutable. Speaking of authoritarians... Just because someone disagrees with you, though, doesn't mean you're not entitled to have your opinion. That can happen. That means we have to own our own power and be assertive in our own right. Like the Bible writer who says, uh, do not think more highly of yourself than you ought. You are supposed to think somewhat highly of yourself and have a sense of who you are. Not too much, but enough. But we don't collect power by expressing our opinions that no one can talk back to, and you don't lose power when someone talks back to your opinion. But I have to say, it's hard to do that. 
you know, part of my living is expressing my opinion in front of people. And so some people are more accustomed to doing that than others. I do that because I'm a pastor. I'm more accustomed to doing it because I'm a man. There's a lot of, and, and, and uh, I practice talking a lot. And I talk a lot. So like I have a lot of, uh, um, some of that comes naturally to me. But it's hard to express a thought of yours if you think you'll be criticized or disagreed with or any other problem. It's hard to be vulnerable because our thoughts are actually intimate. And so I understand not wanting to be challenged when you express your thought, but I want to work us toward mutual trust that allows for real dialogue to happen and real vision, for us to move towards a real vision. I think most of the time we're too polite to disagree or to express our opinions. It's really hard to do that. We don't want to ruffle any feathers. Don't want to offend somebody else, but we don't want to be offended too. So normally we talk to uh, the people that we trust. We want the whole church to be a trust system, not just your clique in the church. So that, that happens, I think, commonly. You talk to your friends about what you think about stuff. Usually in, in what you thought of as entirely safe context. We want the whole church to be that way, not just the people you hold dear. Like some of you, and talk back is a good opportunity for this, some of you will disagree with something that I say tonight, and you might be disagreeing with me right now, but you'll never tell me, and you'll tell your friend. And that's okay. I know I know that's how it is, okay? Because I, I, I've been doing this at least long enough to conclude that, and that's not pressuring you to have some public conversation with me or confront me at all. You don't have to do that. But it's hard to do it, is my point, when you decide to do it. Generally, we hope someone does something about the thing we don't like because it's too risky for us to put our necks on the line. Like maybe you hope God speaks to me in some way that uh, reveals your thought that you didn't tell me to me and then I become a better person, which could happen. You know, we, we do try to self-reflect too. It's not just an external process. Um, but it's hard to live in that context, right? It's hard to, to You're always walking on eggshells. You're afraid to offend somebody and if you express your opinion, you're going to be yelled at you're going to be hurt, offended, right? All of this stuff can happen. You know, so we're working on having a safe community where a dialogue can love and all this together. And we admit there are a lot of problems that enter in despite our efforts. You know, I, I want to create, I want to, with you, a different kind of community um, where we're listening to understand, where we're trying to hear each other and move in a common direction. I, I think sometimes we don't get enough practice doing this, and so when we finally feel like we have to say something, it is something that really weighs a lot to us and means a lot to us, and our stress has a kind of over, it's, it, it's exceeded its threshold, and now we're amped up, you know, because we just withheld for so long. And then all of a sudden we're mean to each other, you know, or we yell at each other. I'm entitled, I'm, I am entitled to my opinion, and I never get to express it. And so now here I am, and now I'm countering yours, and then, then we become a, you know, stiff-necked, or horns get locked. Let's listen for understanding, but our vision for the church isn't just one where no one ever has a conflict. We might actually conflict because we're entitled to our opinion, but we're trying to discern the Holy Spirit together. And that's hard work. It takes, it takes a body to do that. It's not just decided by our pastors or our leaders. We do find the gifted among us to lead and to pastor us, and they're in the positions they're in for a reason because I think they hopefully were discerned to have 
uh, good discernment, but their titles don't give them authority on their own, or their offices don't give them authority on their own. You know, my, uh, that's why you don't call me Pastor Johnny, right? Or else I have to call you Pastor Bethany. That's the, that's because we, we got to be on the same level. That's the idea we're working on. We honor those who lead us and we love them, but they don't have a special position of authority where their opinions are inscrutable, unless they're particularly insecure. You know, I, I, I think, and, and then why is that your pastor? I, I think that we need to divorce authority from our entitlement to an opinion. You're entitled to your opinion, but not, but it doesn't only have value because it's unquestioned. I think that when we see our opinions that way, when we see the law that way, when we see anything that way, we're signing up to get oppressed. If what I say is unchallenged, can't be challenged by you, then I'll have to, I'm oppressing you. That's how it's working. That sounds dramatic, but I really think we need to own who we are and see ourselves as God sees us and be able to speak confidently with what we've discerned without doing so in a reactionary way. That takes care. And it may just result in conflict. And the conflict is okay because we admit we're uh, coming from flawed places, but we're trying to agree to agree. And, and you know, just to give you an idea, I think, that's, I think this is how the Bible works too. I'm not going to quote a passage about that offers you a principle about what to do here. I just want to show you how the whole thing kind of works. There's two accounts of Israel's history, Samuel Kings and Chronicles, that tell different stories. They tell different stories to different people, but they're compiled together to demonstrate how you collect wisdom by hearing different people, different accounts, different takes on the facts. The same thing happens in Genesis 1 and 2 when you have two different creation narratives. The same thing happens with the four biographies of Jesus that we call the Gospels. The same thing happens even later in the uh, New Testament with the epistles, where you have James, Peter, John, and Paul having varying even theology at times, and sometimes even <laughs> countering one another in the letters they write because they hear of each other. The thing works together not because they live in a marketplace of ideas, but because they've agreed to move together in a common way. And as long as we're doing that, and our opinions shape that, we're free to have dialogue about where to do and where to go. And we're just trying to do that as a, uh, as a church, as a congregation connected to South Jersey, uh, Germantown, and South Philly. That's, a, that's, that's pretty big. That's a big group of people with a lot going on. You know, someone said, well, we should do it with the whole denomination. Well, that's, that's, a, that's pretty big. That's 30,000 people. You know, and then there are some like, uh, um, like the Catholics have to do it with a lot of people, you know, and so then, and, and you can see the evidence of their, uh, of their commonality in, in how slowly they move, you know, and so it is true, you, if you did it by yourself, you'd go really fast. If you're deciding to do it together, you'd go a little slower. Sometimes it's, it's cumbersome. And you might feel cumbersome here because we don't move as fast as you want, you know? And we're, we're a fairly small body. And there are other places that go real big. Like when you talk about the MCC, they have representatives all over the world. And so it's a whole different, okay, now we have a whole different thing we're thinking about. Anyway, that's what we're trying to do here, have a common vision that moves us together. So I'll correct the senator saying this way, everyone is entitled to their opinion, but because we're working together, 
because we're working together to discern the truth. Your right to express your opinion isn't enough. It's not about your individual freedom to do so. Nor is your opinion being subject to the facts, which we decided weren't reliable, or at least I did. We're working on discerning our vision and direction together. You matter to the process, and so does your opinion. This isn't a responsibility. This isn't a right you have. It's a responsibility you have. And with that responsibility means you're responsible for who your opinion affects, how you say it, and how you live in community. You're still responsible for that. You're not just entitled to your opinion, and then you can let everything go. No, we're responsible to have one, and then responsible together for where we're going. It's risky. You might get hurt. There might be a conflict. But I think it's worth it, because I think you're worth it. I think you matter. So even though your opinion isn't inscrutable, I think your opinion to our process is invaluable. And so let's build a church where we can um, not, uh, invaluable means without value. You cannot assess it. Let's build a church where we see each other that way, but we move together to a common vision as slowly as we need to, as long as we need to. So if it takes us 40 years to finally agree to agree, that would be a good life lived. Because we're, we're, we're moving in the same direction. We're trying. We're trying to make it work. Thanks for listening to Circle of Hope's Sunday Meeting Podcast. If you want to talk about it or get connected to a cell, you can find one under our Connect drop-down at circleofhope.net.